had a very strange childhood. Had the worst case any doctor had ever seen. My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. Hey everybody, Casper Schultz here, co-founder of Innovative Medicine. I've been blessed to meet patients from around the world, and each has a special story that I just love to hear. I first remember meeting today's guest years ago in the conference room of our clinic, NYCIM, and being incredibly inspired and captivated. I soon learned that he actually wrote a book and immediately wanted to dive into it. I devoured that book in about three days and was completely blown away by what I read. From growing up in war-torn Rhodesia as a young boy to being attacked by a rogue hippo on the Zambezi River that nearly killed him, to then becoming a serial entrepreneur, speaker, author, adventurer, philanthropist, and president of his own foundation. We kept in touch over the years, and I always valued his perspective on so many things, so I'm really thrilled for him to share this story with you today. It's one of overcoming adversity and to serve as a beacon of hope to so many. This is the story of Paul Templer. Paul, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And we've known each other for quite a a little while. It's been years and uh, I met you at the center and then I read your book, which was absolutely fabulous. What's left of me sitting right here next to me. And I want to start off with really going back to where you started your story in a place called Rhodesia that I know is Zimbabwe and I've been a very beautiful country but has its you know, history as well. And one of the first things that I remember reading your book that fascinated me was your upbringing. You know, your father was part of the Rhodesian army and, and even the, the story of you as a young child wrestling a lion cup. That's where you started your story in a sense in this war-torn area and everything. Can you go into what was that like growing in Africa and Rhodesia at the time and how that impacted you and, and everything to come? So it was interesting, growing up as a child in what was then Rhodesia, because you're a child, everything seemed normal. It's looking through it now with an adult size and having children of my own living here in the United States, that I see how from an American perspective, it was incredibly abnormal. I mean, I was surrounded by wild animals. Um, it was the great outdoors. As you mentioned, my father was in the military, so I was surrounded by soldiers. I would go to school in an armored personnel carrier with armed with soldiers. Um, and the reason we transitioned from buses to armored personnel carriers was because of getting ambushed. And I can remember life was very much to be cherished and it it was interesting from an attachment perspective. As a child, I remember not letting myself get too attached to people because people stopped showing up. And there was a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to mourn, but it was drive on. It was very much a drive on mentality. So I think that became real formative. And I'm not saying positively or negatively. But it, it, it definitely influenced the way I, I interact with the world. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of confusion. I mean, it was, it was this crazy hodgepodge from a, 
a racial, a cultural, a political perspective. It was all over the place. And as a kid, it was nigh on impossible to make sense of. Uh, we just knew that people were trying to kill us. And that wasn't a good thing. I can imagine that put a lot of stress on you as a child and you didn't even know it, correct? Because you're in a situation where there is there are guns around that people are dying, where it is conflict, true conflict. And you, you have this sense of fight or flight going on. You know, your nervous system is kind of activated. As a child, I think, you know, being in a safe environment is incredibly important. But of course, we adapt. Our level of safety is, you know, dependent on the environment itself. You became used to that in a sense. But did you attribute any of that sort of fight or flight mentality that you may have been stuck in with anything moving forward in your life and any uh, you know health issues you may have seen even? Or, or did you have any health issues as a child when you were growing up that you could say, well, well, maybe that was a little bit attributed to being in an environment where it was very you know, activated and stressful? I think, Casper, and this isn't to cast dispersions on the medical treatment and diagnosis I got at the time. But, I mean, it, it was when I look back at the 70s and the 80s. So, for example, I got a kidney disease, which was attributed to um, bilharzia, a waterborne parasite. But it, it progressed to the degree, it, it got really bad. 2020 hindsight, looking through today's lens, you can look at allostatic loads, you can look at hypertension, you can look at all the things that were going on that would have been influencing, in that example, kidney function. Outside of that, remarkably healthy, it was the great outdoors. But that in particular, um, at the time, I remember living out of a story that it was uh, waterborne parasite. Now, speaking to doctors, because we keep an eye on my health, it's like, had less to do with Bill Hart's here than it had to do with sales. Yeah. And that, those are things you could kind of look back in and have some reflection with and be able to say that, of course, at the time, it's incredibly difficult. And you did listen to the doctors and your journey continued on in the wild there in the beautiful natural setting where you spend a lot of time on the Zambezi River, something that I, I read and I was like, oh, I, I know the Zambezi River. I swam in the Zambezi River. Even before I met you, I remember hearing that you came from Zimbabwe and I was so excited to talk to you. And then I read the book and then I learned a little bit more about your story. And I questioned whether I should have swam in the Zambezi River after that. <laughs> And can you tell listeners who don't know what I'm talking about the story of, of why the Zambezi River is such a critical part of your life and, and kind of how that did dictate so much for you and, and the events that, you know, really changed your life in many ways? Right. Casper, uh, the Zambezi River had been so formative. As a kid, my dad had spent a lot of, of his time up there serving and I'd go visit him and I can remember as a real young kid, I must have been about eight or nine, and standing next to Victoria Falls and just blown away by just the magnificence and the splendor of it and feeling like a little part, I know it sounds corny, but a little part of my soul connecting there. Mm. So many years later, country Rhodesia evolved, it became Zimbabwe, and it's kind of settled into... Uh, it's, it's natural cadence. I wasn't really ready to settle. So I went to try to find a solution to life geographically somewhere else. And not surprisingly, ended up back in Victoria Falls on the Zambezi River um, because I think that was truly where home was. And 
the Zambezi for me epitomized everything that was right and everything that was wrong and everything that just was with Africa. It was raw, it was beautiful, it was vibrant, it supported life. But at the same time, you, you've been there, everything can change in an instant. Very true. Uh, there's symbiotic relationships between all the wildlife, between the humans. It's this incredible ecosystem and everyone has their part to play and everything has a season and a reason. And in a way, that made life real easy to live. So it, it, it was, um, gosh, it was so much fun. You've been there. Um, it's mm -hmm. beautiful. It's fun. Gorgeous. Yeah. And then there was the kid in me, and we spoke a little bit about um, my ability to attach to people. And um, Victoria Falls was an adrenaline playground. So for me and the way I saw my, the world, it was perfect. And you went on to give tour guides, correct, on the Zambezi? That was part of your life at that time, right? Being the tour guide, Paul, and being outside, being in nature, doing all that, connecting with others. Yeah, I loved it. I was uh, probably below average raft guide, um, but there's phenomenal white water down there. Um, an average kayaker. And, but where I really, uh, my real passion and my real love, and I think where I excel was I loved pe taking people on river safaris, in amongst the flora, the fauna, getting to know the wildlife, um, getting to connect with and appreciate and find themselves and um, loved it and probably would still be doing that if it uh, wasn't for a really bad day at the office. And you called it that because it literally was a bad day at the office for you, whereas for many people, and I want you to kind of tell a little bit of that story, but for many, that would be a, a, you know, much more than a bad day at the office. But for you, it was a bad day at the office, and that's all you kind of attributed it to, correct? It was. Yes, but, you know, living on the Zambezi and working on the Zambezi, um, it, it wasn't without its risks. There were some areas that were still heavily landmined. There were a lot of animals that um, could be hazardous. Uh, there were snakes, there were scorpions. I mean, there were a lot of things that could lead to you having a pretty bad day. And I'd been pretty blessed up until that point. Um, I'd run into skirmishes with, <laughs> you mentioned at the front end, I fought with a lion and I'd been attacked by crocodiles and hippos and charged by elephants. And I, I'd had my share, but then one day things went a little further and uh, I got attacked trying to rescue one of my apprentices by a really big, really angry uh, hippopotamus. And that very much changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. I mean, you lost an arm during that. You were critically, you know, injured. I think, uh, were you not even at one point pronounced dead, I believe? Um, yeah, so the attack was, it went on for a long time. And, and when hippos attack, they try to destroy what they're attacking. And then about three and a half minutes of its ongoing attack, the hippo managed to inflict quite a lot of damage. And when I got to the hospital, 
first it was nothing short of a miracle that I got there. Um, and that's according to the, the medics. Apparently, the amount of blood I had lost, <laughs> which led to the amount of blood I still had in my body, was incompatible with life. Um, and so they did what they could because of I had a lot of head, neck, and spinal injuries. Painkillers and certain methods of regulation weren't really an option. Uh, they thought they were taking off both my arms, one of my legs. I had punctured lung. I was a mess. And the closest hospital with a surgeon who could work with me turned out it took us about eight hours from when the attack happened to when I was able to get to the hospital. So there was lots of in and out and um, turned into quite an afternoon. Yeah. One evening. I can imagine. I mean, listen, that is such a traumatic event that the body went through that you went through. What was the recovery like? Not even from the body speed time, you know, the, the body heals as, as you are here and you understand very well how the body can heal itself, uh, especially given the right circumstances. But what was the recovery for you mentally at that point? Undergoing such a traumatic event in a spot that you cherished and loved and understood. That's the bad day at the office, a very bad day you know, that, that almost lost your life. But what was it like mentally to try and get back? What was your you know, state of mind after that? So at first, Casper, there, um, there was a lot of guilt. I'd been the guide in charge and one of my apprentices, um, the chap who I'd been trying to rescue when I got attacked, ended up dying in the attack. So there was a degree of guilt that went with that. There was a degree of anger. I was, I was angry at myself, um, coulda, shoulda, woulda. I was angry at the guy who died for dying. Um, I, I was just pissed. I, I was angry that my life as I knew it, um, I was incredibly fortunate. They thought they were going to take off both arms and leg, they just ended up taking off one arm, but that still dramatically shifted my life. And I went through a period where for sure I drank too much, uh, felt sorry for myself, and was a hot mess for quite a while, for probably the better part of six months. I had a really strong family support and friend support, though, and when I would be sitting feeling sorry for myself, they would tell me to get over it and move on. It was very much that drive on mentality. And sitting with a friend, we'd planned for that on canoeing the Zambezi River. Zambezi River had never been canoed from source to sea before. And one day, one of my mates sat down and said, we can still do it. And with that, I found a prosthetist who could build me a kayak paddle that I could strap onto one arm, and it gave me a reason to live again. So I was able to focus on what happened next. And in a lot of respects, it was great because in, I can't speak for anyone else, but for myself, I think I was kind of a classic PTSD case. It, it gave me a chance to, to drive on and not really deal with the issues at hand. Um, I could keep busy. I could keep what was the classic running away from my shadow? As long as I had a goal to move towards, I can keep moving. And you did end up doing that canoeing, right? From source to end of the Zambezi, correct? We did. It took us 
three months. And at the time we completed the fullest ascent to date, we, skip, we had to skip a short stretch um, because some warlords wouldn't let us through in Angola. But outside of that, fantastic trip, phenomenal. And, and that was great for my mental health too because I had gone in going, disability doesn't mean inability. I mean, I was like a walking billboard for all these cliches. And when I went through a couple of times, because I was so determined to do it, I put my team at risk. And there was actually two occasions where I probably should have died were it not for my teammates risking their lives to save me. And so coming to the space of just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something, started to settle. And this notion of, you know what, when I get to the end of this river, maybe I need to uh, take a step back and, and look to recalibrate. And you did recalibrate. And was that the time that you decided to leave Africa and come to the U.S.? It was. At the time, I'd, I'd met um, an incredible woman, and um, I wanted to be married to her, and she didn't want to live in Africa. So we moved to the U.S. And, um, and so began the next chapter, starting and building and setting up a life here in the United States. The next chapter involved writing the book, sharing, becoming an author, speaker, you know, inspirational uh, guide and, and just a, a serial entrepreneur. Like, I see so many things that have happened since that, that event that have led to, to I, I guess, a sharing of so much inspiration, so much hope. Do you feel that that uh, event was positioned to guide you into that do you have a sense of that now that everything that happened led you into writing what's left of me, becoming an entrepreneur and, and basically sharing this story to provide hope and inspiration? Or was that something you feel would have happened anyway? No, I, th I think it absolutely helped. Casper, um, initially, I, I had no intention of becoming a speaker or an author. Um, but when I arrived in America, and got married. My wife at the time thought I should have a job, which seemed very reasonable. And it didn't seem that there were a whole lot of employment opportunities for a one-armed ex-safari guide in the metro Detroit. <laughs> so at the time, I'd set up a foundation, a 501c3, and we were helping people who had lost limbs in Africa. And I was invited to go and speak. And people kept saying to me, you know, you could actually pay some of your bills by doing that. And so I became the accidental speaker. And then writing the book was kind of cathartic. So between standing on a stage, sharing my story, and trying to extrapolate lessons um, for me that I was able to share, that was incredibly healthy and helpful. And um, writing the book the same. So extremely grateful for them, but it, was, uh, it wasn't by intent. And, and when I look back at it now, I think it was training wheels for what was to come. Um, what follow, I thought that was going to be my life lesson. I had no idea that that was just preparing me for what was to come. Yeah, I think so much of uh, you know, what we go through prepares us in, in the, if we let it be that correct. And, you know, I've spoken to so many patients that have just gone through so much different struggle, so many different struggles, trauma, and, and, you know, years and years of, of suffering that look back 
once they get through and say the same thing. Those were the training wheels. I could bless those events in the past. They set me up for something bigger and also for taking on the challenges that were to come in a sense. And for you, you know, you, you started a company, Opus Dynamic, that you founded or CEO of, and it's a CBM, which is a commitment-based management company. Tell me about that commitment-based management because I'm in business and I understand many different approaches to business and, you know, the non-for-profit and everything, but what led you to start that Opus Dynamic? So I was, I was incredibly blessed when I, when I came to the U.S., um, just through a series of really crazy coincidences, I ended up getting a job with a guy who actually was the founder of that ontology, that methodology. And he, he, his company, Business Design Associates, he was a chap called Fernando Flores, had a lot of really, really smart people working with them. And they were looking at how do we build high-performing teams? How do we enable people to show up more fully, um, to take care of their commitments to themselves and to each other? And Fernando, quite brilliant, and the teams that he had, quite brilliant. And they were looking for people, uh, practitioners, to go and take this out to the world. And I was just real blessed and real fortunate that I was kind of a test tube baby. They were looking for people who had done things that were a little out of the norm, climb mountains, paddle rivers, um, who could engage and interact with people and who were kind of an embodiment. So I felt um, I really appreciated that the the team thought that was me. And I learned all about, I got deep dive and learned all about this commitment-based management stuff. And it was fantastic, Casper. It was predicated on the position that as we interact with each other, we make commitments and the way we take care of those commitments and the way we take care of ourselves and each other, there's a direct correlation between that and success. And there's a number of very simplistic moves and simplistic ways of being and doing things that we can learn, that we don't just inherently come whizzing into life with, but that we can learn and we can apply and we can adapt and we can generate a lot of value. And over the years, it was magnificent. I got to travel around the world, work with teams, a lot of Fortune 500 companies. Um, As my career escalated, I ended up doing a lot of executive development, executive coaching, executive team coaching. We've used this methodology with professional sports teams, did a bunch of work with the military. Anytime you've got individuals who want to function as a high-performing team and really take their work to the next level, this commitment-based management work is, um, at first blush, extremely simple, but once applied, is incredibly effective. And I love that because once you make a commitment, you have a goal, you have purpose. And like you said, when you have purpose, you have drive to drive on also and to all be driving on in the same direction with the same focus and same intensity and same energy, positive energy, hopefully. And I think that's what's incredibly important for health in general. I think people mistake that you know, having purpose or, you know, anything in the realm of spirituality and mentality really dictate health when it really starts with, you know, the physical side, right? whether that is what you eat, how you work out. Whereas I think, you know, our approach a little bit more, it is much more of a holistic one. 
And it does uh, have a, a very large section of that is what is your purpose? What is your commitment to life? Where are you finding joy? And where are you finding that passion and everything? So I love to take that and apply that to business because I don't think that's just good business. That's good for health as well and general well-being of everyone. Don't you agree? Oh, agree wholeheartedly, Casper. And I think that's why when I came to work with you guys at, at the New York Center of Innovative Medicine, when I got sick, because with CBM, it's, it's extremely codified. We have a, a way of doing things that is guaranteed to produce results. You do this, it will produce the result. If you be this, you will experience that. And so coming to work with you guys, um, I already had that orientation. You know, one of my clients once when I, they finished a program, um, I asked him, what did you get out of it? And he said, ah, you showed me how to take care of myself and who and what I care about. And when I came to NYCIM, that's kind of what you guys said to me. We're going to show you how to take care of yourself and who and what you care about. So there was this incredible connection. So again, what, strange coincidence? I think not. No, no, no strange coincidences <laughs> in this world. Not that I believe in. But tell us a little bit about that. Because I, of course, you ended up at NYCIM. But what was, like the, what was the journey like? You got sick. You didn't just start here. I know that. You did go elsewhere, correct? And you tried to navigate, as so many do, the medical system and tried to find the right solution for yourself. What was that like? Was it a long journey before you ended up at our doorstep at NYCIM? And, and kind of what were the steps before you got here? So the journey started with really getting run down, not feeling well and it progressing significantly. And not feeling well meant I was getting dizzy, I was losing my memory, eyesight was going, there was blood coming out of places it shouldn't be, there was a lot of pain, and it was progressing. And I ended up getting sent to see the folks in nuclear medicine where they take those cool scans and they have a look. And my body lit up like a Christmas tree everywhere from brain, lymphatic system, lungs, liver, kidney, you name it, pancreas, bowel. It's just the list went on. And I remember I had a business trip I was supposed to be going on. And the head of the nuclear medicine group came through and said, uh, if you were my husband, I would tell you to go home right now and get your affairs in order and get them in order quickly. Um, there was very little ambiguity. Then things got confusing because then I would go, I went to see another doctor and they had a different story. And then I would go see another doctor and they would have a slightly different story. And then I remember for me, I was getting frustrated because people would keep asking me what was going on and I couldn't tell them um, because I didn't know. And I remember going to see a pulmonologist because I was really having a lot of problem breathing. And came out of it, and the doctor told me there was nothing wrong with my lungs. And I, I asked him, except for I can't breathe. <laughs> and I just was getting passed on, and I kind of hit a brick wall. At the same time, my wife had decided that she didn't want to be married anymore. So she announced in the middle of it all that she wanted a divorce. And I kind of just got the hell in. 
so I got my affairs in order and then thought what the most responsible thing to do was. I have a pretty strong faith. So first I went to Israel. I went and went to Jerusalem. I went and prayed. I went and I just needed to clear my head. And then I headed off to um, the Himalayas and spent some time with the Karamapalama. I was very blessed to get an blessing there before we headed off into the Himalayas and um, spent some time there, gained some incredible insights. And then I came and met with you guys and went through my testing. And it, it turned out that finally there was some clarity. The results of the test that I ran, that you guys ran at NYCIM, I wish I'd gone to you right after the nuclear folks because it actually tied up cleanly with the very initial prognosis. The difference was you guys had a solution. But before I started with you, I headed off to the Amazon and I spent some time with a shaman there and went for some healing. And the interesting thing was when I got to New York to work with you guys, between the time I'd spent in Israel and the time I'd spent in the Himalayas and the time I'd spent in the Amazon, what they had to say lined up perfectly with what you guys had to say. So in each of those places, I'd be living out of the question, how do I get healthy? I, I want my health back. And their answer had been, hmm, maybe start with being grateful. Maybe start, go from there to being kind to yourself and to others. And then focus on doing the next right thing. What you eat, where you put your attention, the way you engage. That ended up being the path I ended up going down. I, I came to you guys and you were saying the same thing. You had a plan. It was orientated around me, putting my head and my heart in the same place and just doing the things that were going to build health. And I remember I would come and see, I was living in Chicago at the time, and I'm flying to New York twice a month and spend a week there and deep dive into treatments. And it was incredible. A little over a year after being told, get my affairs in order really quickly and kind of not really seeing much of a future. I remember sitting in my apartment in Chicago and getting a call from Dr. Tom Schultz, your, your father, and um, we had just run some tests and he said, you're good to go. It's not a sign of, I mean, at first there had been, I remember the ABCs, the amoebas, the bacteria, the cancer, and then there were these flukes and then there were all these pathogens. And these toxins, and I've been such a hot mess. And now I had a clean bill of health, and I was healthy. It was incredible. Well, I know he loves giving those calls, and I know I love hearing the stories of those and, and everyone. And, you know, again, I hear this story and I hear your story, and I just think of so many people that are going through the same up to a certain point of that frustration of being past the pulmonologist and saying, nothing here I could see. 
but doc, I can't breathe. You know, there is something here. Mm-hmm. And then you know, you're, you're made to think, is it in my head? Is it something, you know, I'm, I'm not sure of. And there is this level of, of complete frustration from so many about the medical system. But I love the fact that you traveled the world and you heard from different experts, whether they be shamans, monks, spiritual people, anything, something that was very similar to what we believe medicine should be, because we believe it is about a worldly view, a truly holistic viewpoint of the patient and where they can start their journey of healing, not where the doctor can start healing them because a doctor never heals anybody. That's the problem, I think, of the mentality of so many. It's that, doc, heal me. Where it should be, doc, tell me how I could heal myself. And starting with your levels of consciousness, going into gratitude, going into that more of that joy and kindness is a great starting point of healing yourself. And then from there, of course, there are catalysts that we have assembled from around the world to help and personalize to each patient. But I think it starts with that mentality of seek what is out there that is different, that resonates with you, that allows you to heal yourself. And I love the fact that you are able to heal yourself and see that this worldly approach and hear from so many others that this was the approach because I, I do feel so many need that in this day and age. And I would be remiss to, to not bring up you know, what's going on today and how so many people are in a state of fear in a state of anger, in those states that are probably, if you traveled to some of those shamans would say, well, first off, get out of those states. How do you feel we should navigate knowing what you know so much, having this worldly view, meeting so many different people, getting yourself out of so many challenging situations? What are some of the things you would tell people today going through states of fear or even states of disease and discomfort to do in these times that can absolutely help themselves? I would I'll share what, what's worked with me. I've, I've discovered that um, I can't be grumpy and afraid and grateful at the same time. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that experientially, and I've done a, a lot of work and looked at a lot of the science, just the brain and the heart can't do it. And where you put your attention, your energy goes. So as corny and as simplistic as it might sound, taking a few minutes a day to just breathe and focus on being grateful. Advantage to that being, A, it feels good, and B, given this environment, this world that we're all living in at the moment, we all have such high cortisol levels. There's such a high level of cortical inhibition, and we all have these allostatic loads from this continual stress, what people don't realize is that just by engaging in a little bit of gratitude, it sets off a different set of neurochemicals and the, your neurophysiology shifts and changes and you're actually setting yourself up for success to be able to actually thrive in this environment and take care of yourself and the people you love and care about. So you're giving yourself a shot by just being grateful. And one way to leverage that is also to find a way just to be kind. And two dimensions to it. Be kind to other people. It's pretty easy. It can be as simple as a smile in the store or holding a door open or whatever you want it to be. But bringing intentionality to being kind once a day, it's not that difficult. And here's the, the one that's a bit of a kicker, though. Once a day, finding a way to be kind to yourself. Mm. Like real intentionally, if it's, 
I'm going to actually eat some fruit or I'm going to drink some water or I'm going to get nine hours sleep or just intentionally being kind to myself. And that takes care of the third thing, do the next right thing. So if we can do that, if we can focus on some gratitude, find a way to be kind and do the next right thing, that, that would be the counsel, I think. Yeah. I can absolutely echo that. I think that idea of being kind to yourself is, of course, self-care, self-love, and a healing response to everything. And then you do prioritize your health when you have that kindness to yourself. And I, I could absolutely get behind that idea of being kind to others, even in the face of them being unkind to you. I think that's the challenging part these days. We have such a polarized kind of view on things and so much back and forth and animosity towards others that may not think like us or do something bad to us. I think it's in those moments that it's critical to find kindness and compassion for others. I think we've lost that a little bit. We, we just snap off, right? Someone cuts us off and suddenly it's a road rage incident. Whereas in the past, we should be allowed to say, maybe that person is rushing to see someone that's dying right now. Maybe they have their pregnant wife in the car and need to get to a hospital and they didn't mean to cut us off. Or maybe they didn't, but who knows? You don't know that. And I think having that time to reflect and just say, be kind instead of the outrage and sudden impulse to go to something negative and, and harbor on that throughout the rest of the day and stay in negative fields of energy in a sense mm. is really something that's so critical these days. And I see less and less of it, right? Less and less of that time to take a deep breath and remember gratefulness, kindness, say those words to yourself and just let it go. Because in the end, it's isn't it so much better for you and the other person? It's not even about the other person that it's really about yourself. You're doing an act of kindness for yourself because otherwise you'll just be stuck in a very negative state based off something that you have no control over. That person already cut you off. That person already said something you don't like, maybe. That's okay. And I, I feel like that's really necessary. I don't know. Do you agree with that? I agree wholeheartedly there, Casper. You know, um, I'm blessed I got two teenage kids and um, they're a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> and, and we'll get into these conversations and they roll their eyes because I'm like, take a deep breath. It's real easy to get right, to be right, to need to be right about things. And they go, oh, dad. And I'm like, no, do it. And they go, what difference is it going to make? I say, here's the thing. When you react the way you do, that's not you. That's a bunch of neurons firing. There's a neural pathway that when you're in your fight or flight response is going to be purely focused on your survival. You're not interested in taking care of yourself or people that you care about or being a kind person. The who you really are when I'm speaking to my kids is you're a good person. You, you're, you're committed to taking care of yourself and each other. Why not give yourself a shot at it? Don't be run by your neurochemistry and your neurophysiology because it's an excuse I think a lot of people can hide out. Well, it's just me. Yes, it is just you, but you know what? How about you bring some intentionality? Again, my kids roll their eyes. I'm like, just for one month, the start of a day, take a few breaths, focus on what you're grateful for. Find intentionally once a day, be kind to someone, especially when they piss you off. So when there is the opportunity for road rage or you see someone who you're judging, maybe just take a breath and go, what does the world look like through their eyes? And I think it's these little practices to echo your point, Casper. We got to start somewhere. Yeah. And it is truly in the simple acts 
people think it has to be complicated. That is such a challenge to start to heal or start to, you know, overcome whether it's disease or old habits that they've had or things that, you know, they want to get rid of in their life. And I think when you make it a challenge, it becomes something that you put off, of course, something that uh, it's going to take so much time to change that. Oh, I'm overweight. It would take, you know, this and that. No starts maybe with one deep breath starts with one little act of kindness to yourself in the morning for 10 seconds. Even that's how simple it could be. And it doesn't need to be expensive. People think, oh, it's so expensive. I need to join the gym. No, you could take a walk anywhere, <laughs> up and down the stairs if you want. That's how simple things could be if we allow it. And I do think nature runs in that way too, in the universe. Love simplicity. I think we like to make things chaotic and we like to complicate them. And then, of course, give excuses as to why certain things happen. But I don't know. In, in studying even of you know quantum physics, it's it's sometimes it's it's the simple things that really make the most sense and are the most logical and can help us the most. And so I do love everything that's uh, that you're putting out there with the kindness, gratitude, because I believe that's the number one medicine. It's not you know what happens here is is a secondary level. If you don't have that kindness and, and gratitude, all the procedures and IVs and different technologies, they don't do too much really. They, they'll help. Mm -hmm but they won't really guide you into long-term healing. So you got to embrace that as well. Could I, could I just echo on something? Absolutely. Casper. So all of this, and I think what you're pointing to, and it's something that you guys very much kept at the foreground when I was in New York, was living from a position of choice, mm -hmm. like how empowering that is. And I'm sitting here. I was looking forward to our conversation and I went and found the quietest place I could find in Michigan and set it up. And we started this call and a construction crew moved in like 40 yards away. <laughs> and I felt my body kicking up, like getting kind of stressed about it. Like, should we cancel it? Should we? I don't know what to do. But sitting, looking at you, listening to the conversation and engaging it. Isn't that what life is, though? Like stuff happens and we get to choose what happens next. Everything's a choice, isn't it? Everything. And we don't think it is, right? You're thinking, well, that's not a choice that that construction crew just showed up. Like, what, where's the choice in that? The choice is in your response, correct? The choice is in me not even hearing that at all, not knowing it. It has no impact on this whatsoever. The choice is in your response to it. And I will say, I did not see any sort of <laughs> frustration in you. I did not see anything come out of that. So I think you made the smart choice <laughs> in ignoring it and, and say, staying captivated in this, this riveting discussion here. So <laughs> thank you for that. Fantastic. I'm relieved to hear you can't hear all these machines. <laughs> no, but that is funny that you're like, all right, I need a really quiet place. And it's suddenly, you know, boom. They, the whole construction crew decides to show up right then and there. That is a test of the universe right there, I believe. You pass, sir. Very well done. <laughs> Listen, you got a lot of things coming up, Paul. I mean, I love the first book. I was always waiting. And now I see you do have books coming out, correct? Can you tell us about that? Sure. The next book on November 4th coming out is called Marked for Life. So... Last year started and life was interesting and then COVID arrived and it got a whole lot more interesting. And then shortly after that, my daughter Erin, who was 15 at the time, she had a seizure and she died. Mm. And really trying to make sense of life. And like, like I mentioned earlier, 
I think everything that had led up to that point had been training wheels. Now, I'd never been a huge fan of tattoos, but when I got really sick a few years ago in my adventure, I have a bunch of tattoos now, and each of them has a meaning. Um, Some of them are in Nepali, some of them are in Hebrew, some of them are from my childhood, and it turned into this mantra and this mala almost. Um, But when Aaron died, I had this real crisis of faith. And fortunately, I have this really good friend. She's this incredibly sassy, provocative theologian. And we started talking about part of my catharsis in navigating the world of COVID was how do how do I keep moving forward? How do I be grateful? How do I be kind? How do I do the next right thing? And so this first book, Marked for Life, Finding Grace and Grit We Least Expected, is it's a story about my journey. And it's based on the tattoos. And it's very much anecdotal. Um, people who have read it, some of the early writings are like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see how people react to this. Um, because it's very, Casper, the listeners don't know this, but I would say I'm a, a creature of the universe. I'm a little bit church, a little bit jungle, and a little bit everywhere in between. And Rebecca, my co-author in this book, is very much church, but in a way that's incredibly engaging and enthralling. So it's a series of stories as we've navigated COVID and the lessons we've learned. Wow. I can't wait to read that. And I think that idea of the tattoos and the, the symbology and to act as a totem. And I know you were a fan of, of one of our programs called Empowered Healing that we oh, put out there a long time ago. And yeah, and it's on the shelf now, just waiting to come back to the world at the right time. But one of the things we, we always advise patients that are, are going through treatment, that are going through the challenges to, to have a totem to instill some power in that something where you could either hold it, look at it, see it and have that feeling and have that and those neurological kind of, you know, reactions to it and neurolinguistic programming almost through that to look at it and feel that purpose, feel something there, feel the message to it. And I do think that what you're describing in these tattoos is, is your totem. They are your totems. They, they are something that you know, grounds you, that brings you back to something that shows you those messages, even in those hardest, hardest of times. So I think that's, that's incredibly fascinating. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that book. And you're not just challenging yourself as an author and, and writing about these things. You're also challenging yourself as a runner too. And, and you're doing a marathon, correct? Coming in 2022 to raise charity also. Can you tell us about that, the charity and, and what you'll be doing? So a couple of years ago, so my daughter, Erin, who died, um, she had fairly profound special needs. And I have a charity uh, foundation, 501c3. And we have a program called Erin's Light. And we take early intervention programs to kids living below the poverty line. And it's predominantly focused on chronically and terminally ill kids and their families and special needs kids. And I had this idea a few years ago to run the Marathon de Sabo. It's, uh, I think, six marathons, six days through the Sahara Desert with everything on your back. 
the cool thing is you have a cut of time, like day one, you have a little bit short of a marathon and there's a camel that goes and you have like 10 hours. So you run through the days for 10 hours. As long as you beat the camel, you've survived day one. Day two, <laughs> you do it again. Then the next day you do a double marathon and the next day you do another one. So by the end of the week, you've run quite a long way and you've, um, I think, got to meet yourself. And my intent with that is to raise as much money as I can for Aaron's light in my daughter's, Aaron's memory. And because it's, it's just a good thing to do, it's the next right thing. This COVID has been tough for all of us. And I know the programs with the families and the kids that we work with, with Aaron's light. I mean, just take for a moment, imagine what it's like you're a, a family with a special needs kid living way below the poverty line trying to navigate COVID. So, yeah, it felt like the next right thing. And uh, we were supposed to do it last April. It got cancelled because of COVID, pushed back to October. Got cancelled, pushed back to April. Got cancelled, pushed back to October now, which they're going to run, but I blew my knee out a few weeks ago. So... After training for a couple of years, now my entrance is pushed back to March of 22. Well, I'm sure you will heal up in time and I'm sure you will push yourself and get that completed and get it done. And man, it's just inspirational to hear everything you're doing and how you push yourself and how you've gone through these challenges and how you've handled them. And I mean, where can people learn more about this and, and kind of read your stories, learn more about Aaron's Light, everything? I think probably the easiest place to find this information would be at paultemplar.com. Yeah, go there. Paul, thank you so much. I mean, honestly, since day one, you've been an inspirational figure. Even in the background when you didn't speak, I sometimes look at your book and, of course, think of all the chats we had in the conference room here and over the phone. And it's always been inspirational and kind of made me see things through a different light. You know, and and that's what I think is so important is to to shift perspective sometimes of you know what's going on in the world, where you are, focus on health, happiness, all these positive things. So I can't, you know, thank you enough for all that you do. Yes, but thank you. And and I was really looking forward to this conversation. We all get by with a little help from our friends, and and I am real clear that um I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you and the team at NYCIM. So thank you. Our pleasure to see you continue doing what you do. That That's incredible. And a best of luck in the marathon with the books and everything. And I can't wait to help, uh, you know, promote it, do anything I can from my end. And so keep doing what you're doing, Paul. Love it all. Thank you again. Thanks, Yasmin. Much appreciated. I'm so grateful to have Paul share his story with you guys today. You know, I could think back on my time in Zimbabwe and being on the Zambezi River near Victoria Falls. I just can't imagine the predicament Paul found himself in there, underwater being thrashed around by a hippo that put him on the verge of death. Yet even with the loss of his arm and the trauma of that experience, he continues to push boundaries and inspire others. Anyone suffering from disease or lack of health can learn so much from Paul's story, and I encourage you to read What's Left of Me, as well as his upcoming book in November. Head over to Paul Templer, that's P-A-U-L-T-E-M-P-L-E-R.com to learn more and connect with him. Until next time, continue writing your own healing story.